0: Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Tanya Mutz, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center, and your host for this episode. Since at least the early years of the 20th century, scholars have taken an interest in psychotic art, or what's now known as outsider art. These works were created by individuals whose unconventional perspectives, thinking, and aesthetic expressions have been considered a product of mental illness. They are marked by their idiosyncrasies, obscurity, obsessiveness, awkward meanderings, or they describe visions and sensory perceptions that seem disconnected from reality. While much of the visual art that's characterized as outsider art has received increasing attention since the 1990s, outsider writing has been largely overlooked. However, Dr. Matt Fitch, my guest for this episode, is working this year at the National Humanities Center on a project that reconsiders the writings of outsiders and asks questions about how this work should be read and understood. Welcome to this podcast, Matt. Hello, Tanya. Your work examines outsider writing. What does this mean, outsider writing, and how is it maybe different or similar to outsider art? Mm. Thanks.
1: Well, to start off, um, a lot of the outside of writers, or those considered to be to be writers, were also artists. So um, the same um, collections that have archived the, the art have also archived uh, texts and diaries written by these people. Um, but there are also people who are who are known predominantly for their writing. A good example is Antonin Arto, who um, produced some of that writing uh, from inside the psychiatric archive. So. Arthur produced a lot of textbooks, uh, notebooks in the in the 1940s, um, when he was diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, and there are other um, there are other texts we might think of like uh, Judge Schreber's memoirs of my nervous illness, but w- one thing that distinguishes it from the art is that um, when Hans Prinzhorn published his his book on uh, the artistry of the mentally ill in the nineteen twenties. He created a a bridge to aesthetic culture that meant from then on a lot of artists, first expressionists and then surrealists, became interested in this art as a cultural product, uh, not just as a symptom of mental illness. And that that started the long move towards this um, public dimension of outsider art. But the same thing didn't happen for the writing. Uh, The writing for much longer, across the 20th century, was used as a kind of diagnostic tool or a way of trying to think through um, what is uh, schizophrenia, what is paranoia, what are its verbal or cognitive symptoms, and it, it became stuck in that kind of um, diagnostic uh, corral and has has yet to be released from it, really.
0: Um, you mentioned the psychiatric collection. Can you talk to us a little bit more about your sources and what these collections are that you're looking at and maybe why they've been assembled?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, they're, they're of different kinds. I mean, the most prominent one is, is the one I've just mentioned, the, the one um, created by Hans Prinzhorn in um, Heidelberg uh, when he was attached to the university psychiatric clinic there in the, the early 1920s or the late teens. Um and that's, uh, that's had a long and problematic history as an archive. It was partly used by the Nazis in their exhibitions of degenerate art um, and then was kind of forgotten for a while. But that's that's been re-established as uh, in a, an intellectual resource. It's hosted loads of exhibitions and produced interesting publications. Ano- another one is the collection de la Brue in Lausanne. That was established by Jean de Buffet. So that has a very a very different rationale. Dubuffet was, uh, he he had a kind of polemic and a manifesto about uh, what he called Art Brou. He also described it as anti-cultural art, so art that has no connection with um, social convention or um, gallery art. Um, And he found it not only in psychotic artists, but also in kind of recluses and other people. But psychotic art still had a, a big part in it. Um, and then there's um, there are works that really are the product of recluses and eccentrics, that um, don't exist uh, for any other reason that someone in the family or someone who lived next door prevented it from ending up in the dumpster. And in fact, h- Henry Darger, uh, by by now a very famous artist, h- his work falls into that category, and, and his his writings, which are voluminous, are are. Um, collected in the American Museum of Folk Art. So that's a, you know, a different style of, of gathering.
0: So you mentioned the appetite for some of the outsider art by, for example, the surrealists, and, and certainly on the art market, there's been an appetite and a commercial success to some of this work. What about the outsider writing? How has the writing fared since it's been assembled? Well,
1: there's been very little attention, apart, apart from the, the attention by psychiatrists, clinical psychologists, uh, and linguists who over the 20th century produced a, a, a vast amount of work that's sometimes excerpted from these kind of case notes. Um, there's There's been very little until maybe the 1990s. At that point, um, there started to be more interest as your art, Artaud's um, notebooks have now all been published in French. Um, other, other people, Adolf Wolfley in, uh, from Switzerland, his or part of his voluminous writings have been published in German, but there's, there's very little circulating in translation and there's been very little uh, commentary on any of this stuff. Um, so a lot of it has lain fallow. And the, the only other thing that's been happening in the last few years is the, the Prince Horn has pioneered a set of publications which for the first time do try and devote devote a bit of time to giving some context for the writings they hold. Again, it's still a very small proportion of it, but they're using them now not uh, as examples of diagnosis, but to show how you can um, reconstruct daily life in in these um, asylums in the 1920s or 30s, for instance. Mm.
0: So when these works were originally assembled, there was a kind of boundary work that had to happen in that decisions were made about what was considered sane or insane, and Mm -hmm. conversely, what was to be included or excluded from these collections. How do you today navigate these categories?
1: Uh, With great difficulty. (laughs) In fact, in my my year here, I, I think the most amount of my time has been spent um reading about uh these kind of term term warfares in uh, contemporary art about whether to use outsider or not outsider um lynn Kirk in her her catalog to an exhibition last year um, called outliers and american vanguard art um talks about um chooses not to use outsider because of the stigma she feels attaches to it and i think many people feel that way and there are other terms that could be used like vernacular or uh, naive or modern primitive or isolate. Um, but I think the problems have always been there. The thing about outsider is that, um, well, it firstly has this historical connection to psychosis. Uh, uh, so it seems inappropriate to, to keep applying it to people who you know have no pathology of mental illness. Their, their work has been marginal for other reasons. Um and also the problem is that any term, whether it's outsider or, or, or a different one, would appear to reify that work, um, to constitute it as typ- typical of the outside and therefore it'll always it'll always be outside or it's inherently outside. And someone like Jean de Buffet wanted to do that. He he you know, he he wanted to position his um his artists as as um exemplary of of how to be anti-cultural. I find outside useful, though, because um, the term itself conjures up the association to questions of exclusion. Um, And as as difficult as those are to navigate, I think provoking those conversations from the start about why is something outside, uh, what does it mean to assimilate it or not assimilate it, creates a sensitive environment for then reading those works.
0: In addition to the study that you're doing, you're also putting together an anthology or a collection um, of outsider writings. What does it mean today for someone to bring these writings together and to collect them? And are you focused more on the specific kinds of people who produce the writings or is it more about the writings themselves? A
1: good question. And I I haven't entirely resolved what it means, uh, certainly at a practical level. I haven't decided what form such an anthology could take and even whether it would be um, a published anthology or a digital archive. And I think these kinds of questions can, can only be answered in conjunction with other people. So what I've also been seeking this year is both um, collaborators and people to, to have a conversation with, but also readers. I think the next step in the project is to circulate some texts uh, amongst small groups of different kinds of people have people engage with them and and find out gradually uh, what it is that interests people uh, and how they can become accessible or or culturally relocated in different ways. And from that, build up a specific sense for an anthology. In terms of the the question about people or writing, that's also um, tricky. I think given that they've been archived in such a way in, in psychiatric institutions, where the attention is all focused on the person and their behavioral problems, uh, i.e. the person as mad, as as schizophrenic or paranoid. Um, I definitely have an impulse to remove the texts from that conception of the person and to kind of almost try and de-psychologize them. At the same time, I think um, I think is ethically problematic to just forget that background. So I'm, I'm into, certainly into reinserting historical knowledge of uh, the person's life story, their situation in the psychiatric institution, uh, but just uh, in, a, in a kind of demedicalized way, uh, demedicalized way into that history. Um, again, to, pr- to provide tools and means for understanding these texts differently.
0: Mm who do you envision as being audiences today for outsider writing?
1: Well, there could be many. Uh, certainly, people interested in already interested in the outsider art might be interested. Anyone interested in um, uh, literary versions of madness or just in the question of madness, per se. People interested in experimental or avant-garde writing. So you could say any, anyone interested in Kafka or, or Samuel Beckett. Uh, might be interested in these texts. There's also I, I guess um, I'm interested in the contemporary movement around hearing voices. Uh, it's a kind of renaming of um, of the kind of supposed uh, schizophrenic hallucination of internal voices. and there's there' been a lot of contemporary studies to show that this this hearing of internal voices is actually quite prevalent in society, and people have different ways of processing it. So another way of looking at these texts. Is as these are texts produced by people who heard voices and who tried to set those voices down. So I think it's it's you know it's difficult to predict exactly who those people are as readers, but it, the, they may not be academics. They may just be people who find a connection with these texts. Um, and just on, on a different note, I was speaking to John Oakes, who's one of the few people who anthologized these texts in the in the nineties. And he was recalling how um, there's a particular piece of writing that's a, a letter, uh, and it begins, um, "Please, please, please, please." Canyon is demanding something, and and he he goes on with about sort of fifteen pleases. And as as John said, that there's something instantly interesting and recognisable about these acts. Uh, another way he put it is that in reading some of these texts, he sees things that he realizes he could never. Have bring himself to say, but reading them written by someone else, he kind of can understand where they're coming from.
0: So a lot of the sources that you're looking at, their archives and their collections from the 20th century, where is outsider writing happening today?
1: Hmm, That's an interesting question. I mean, in one sense, by, by definition, uh, we might not know where it's happening today. Because if, if if the if the project is interested in work that's been structurally excluded from what we consider to be culture, we, we may not know where it's happening. Certainly, work continues to be written um, uh, uh, within therapeutic communities or, or creative workshops attached to uh, psychiatric clinics, Um that here has a link to to mental health and mental illness where people are writing texts in the same vein as hap- as were c- gathered earlier in the 20th century but another another area to look at might be uh the internet as um I was speaking to John Wilkinson at the University of Chicago and he he, he noted that um whereas a lot of his material like Darger um was associated with someone who is a recluse in the 20th century. These days, someone who's a recluse might be totally uh, technologically connected to the outside world through the Internet. And the Internet definitely has, has fostered this, this fluorescence of subcultures and subcultural exchanges. So here we have an interesting uh, domain that is both um, uh, you know, set aside from mainstream culture, as many people conceive it, and yet can circulate and become accessible internationally on a, on a grand scale. So that, that in some ways shifts the dimensions of how we consider what is outside, but it's not a domain I've been able to explore myself.
0: Yeah. For the work you're currently doing, what is your hope for this project?
1: Uh, my big long-term hope is just that this, uh, the work that I'm interested in, these texts that are sitting in the archives can be- become more uh, publicly visible more culturally accessible, gain more readers. Um, More specifically, I hope in the next few years to be able to get funding to establish some kind of research center for outsider writing, but the purpose would really be to to establish some kind of hub uh, that could help um, digitally archive or disseminate some of this material and um, promote public discussion about it. By promoting new encounters with these texts formally um, excluded. My hope is that people may adjust their sense of um, what, you know, what is a piece of culture, what is culturally interesting when it comes to writing, which is not necessarily the same as aesthetically interesting. It could be sociologically interesting or, or, or otherwise. Uh, but it also might adapt or have something to contribute to conversations about mental health and mental illness and what is normal and what is not normal.
0: Matt, thank you very much. Thank you, Tanya. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.